The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. It's Wednesday, December 3rd, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So a few days ago on the International Space Station... And let me pause here and just note, yeah, we have an international space station. You do, I do, the world does. We just take modernity for granted oh so often. We have this marvel in outer space orbiting us, as the name implies. I guess it would be like in 1492, many a Castilian would say, oh, right, that Columbus guy. Is he still out there? You know, because we here, we here in the old world, we got a little thing called the Inquisition. Can't really think about Columbus that much. Like the other day, I was like, that's right. He had the Nina, he had the Santa Maria. But what was that one? What was that one? I couldn't for the life of me. And then I remembered it. It was the Pinta. The Pinta. That was the apple the app of those ships. Anyway, big digression. So we have a space station. You do, I do, Al Sharpton does. No, he doesn't. He doesn't pay taxes. And the space station has a 3D printer. I couldn't figure out why. Both of those things are cool and advanced. A space station and a 3D printer. Is it like saying, all right, let's get a couple things, throw them together, see if they're cool, a monkey riding a tiger, right? Or Mentos and a bottle of Diet Coke on a trampoline. You know, the combination of cool. But that's not why. The theory is, if we have a 3D printer in outer space, we don't have to go up there with all the stuff we need. It just might dawn on us, hey, we need some other thing that we didn't come up with, and then we could just print it out. Okay, but let's think about this. Let's say that we brought two spacesuits, and one's attached to the tether, the tether we brought from Earth and tested on Earth and made sure worked on Earth, and the other will probably work. I mean, it's probably a good tether, unless the print job was interrupted by someone printing out an article with all 453 pages of comments. You know what? I'm going to stick with the Earth tether. You use the other one and hope that in the middle of printing it, there wasn't a paper jam in the legal-sized tray. Go ahead, technology. Ah, the Pinta. On the show today, I will spiel about optimism and why we should be reveling in it. And before that, Mary Tyler Moore could turn the world on with hers. A cute seal poster I saw online called it free therapy. I'm talking about smiles, but you wouldn't find much smiling in art until about 200 years ago. But first, policing in the U.S. in the wake of another cop not indicted for killing an unarmed man. A grand jury in Staten Island has decided not to charge Daniel Pantaleo, the NYPD officer who put what appeared to be a chokehold on Staten Islander Eric Garner. Garner was obese and asthmatic, and he's now dead, leaving behind six children. The decision of the grand jury does not preclude a civil case or federal charges, and indeed Bill Bratton, the NYPD commissioner, said that there were three other investigations into the incident ongoing. After the non-indictment of Officer Darren Wilson in the killing of Michael Brown, the question is being asked what can be done to address the problem of police killing unarmed men. Joining me now is Eugene O'Donnell. He's a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, former New York City cop, former assistant district attorney. Hello, Gene. Good to be with you. It's great. It's great to have you on. The first thing I want to ask you is about the limits of looking at one case, any one case, as it relates to broader issues in criminal justice. You know, do you have any thoughts on that? 
Well, I think the cases all have their own unique uh, characteristics. That said, I do think it is probably true that when you aggregate some of the cases, the police cases and other cases, there are things that emerge that uh, you know that are grounds for concern or, or uh, make a case for reforms. Because the limiting factor to me is when we're talking about, did Darren Wilson perceive that Brown went for his gun? Did Darren Wilson originally stop Brown because he thought that he had stolen cigarellos? Lost in the minutia are some of the broader pictures. So what should the broader conversation be in your opinion? Well, the root of this conversation is our refusal as a society to own our criminal justice system and and uh, the suggestions that the police sort of go off on their own and uh, tread and make their own way. It's just not true. And a lot of what the police do is legally authorized and is ratified by lawmakers and prosecutors on a daily basis. In the uh, specific case of Darren Wilson, I have said on this show that I don't think, as I read the law, that he should have been indicted. And then the broader question, well, is the law right? I would say if you train Darren Wilson or someone like him in that way, it's really quite unfair afterwards to say you were trained under one set of rules. Now we're going to hold you to a different standard. Are there some police forces across America who train in a different way, who talk about de-escalation? Well, I mean, actually, the NYPD does a very good job in deadly force, notwithstanding uh, some of the uh, cases that have gotten attention. They do 5 million calls a year, 50 million calls in a decade. Uh, in, in a given year, NYPD has 45 discharges uh, against assailants. Um, it's a very well-regulated department. So, people. That, and not- by the way, I'll just go back and say that's the number of times Every NYPD officer shot a gun against an assailant was about less than 50 last year. 35,000 cops, 45 shootings, almost in, invariably the assailant is armed, yeah. and these are investigated from, you know, soup to nuts. And, uh, and this is a, po- a product of policy. And actually, the irony, the, the, the issue that you mentioned about de-escalation, it actually may have actually in some places, not necess- not, I don't think, Ferguson, but overemphasizing de-escalation has its costs also, which might have been on, on display in the Garner case. The cops generally don't have great hands-on skills when they have to use force. Yeah. So uh, you say, let's try to de-escalate everything, and then when you come into a situation where the de-escalation doesn't work, what then? And, uh, you know, I've been saying that for years, and the commissioner, Braddon, had to acknowledge that New York City police officers, and I think police officers around the country in a lot of places, are not very good at using force when they have to because they're reticent. I mean, the agencies are understandably reluctant to emphasize it in the recruitment, in the training. There's a thought that you change the ethos if you spend too much time on the physical end of the job, but the irony is by not spending time on that, the cops are left at their own devices, which can have tragic endings, as we saw in the Garner case. Yes, yeah, so you're talking about training physically, training for you know physical takedowns, that sort of thing. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and and knowing when you have to do uh, use force, being unequivocal, being being uh, overpowering. And that can actually end up with fewer uh, injuries and better results. It's the hesitation sometimes and the lack of competence in actually the hands-on police uh, physical uh, issues that can lead to very bad endings. So let's talk about some of the uh, specific fixes that have been offered in the wake of Ferguson. One is tasers. Officer Wilson didn't carry a taser. It was too bulky, didn't even stock one, it would seem, in his car. And yet we've heard that tasers don't seem to correlate to a lack of lethality. I think that there's a lot of evidence that shows that tasers are used instead of another non-lethal force, but very few people think about tasers instead of guns. Is that true? Are tasers, can tasers be more of 
give an answer? I'm a skeptic about tasers. I'm not saying they can't be used. There's clearly a place for tasers. The problem I have with tasers, and ironically, it, it, it comes along with uh, cameras also, is the Taser Corporation, which is one of the kind of police industrial uh, complex uh, vendors out there in the marketplace. There was just a study on police cameras that said police cameras work, funded by Taser that happens to make police cameras. Mm -hmm. So trying to get to the bottom of what actually does work and what's effective is not as easy as it may look. Certainly, though, in the Ferguson case, something that I did not see getting a lot of attention is in a well-run department, you're required to carry equipment, and the equipment is specified, and you don't get a chance to say, well, I'm not going to wear that. By the way, including even bulletproof vests. I mean, as ironic as it may sound, there are departments, New York City, is one of them. If you don't put on a, a vest, you could be disciplined for that because, uh, you know, it's not an issue of your personal safety. It's a department issue. So uh, I thought it was interesting that it sort of got overlooked in the, in the Ferguson case that uh, the cops in the department apparently have the discretion to say, I'm not taking this weapon out. I'm going to leave this behind. That's not really a good practice. Okay, let's talk about cameras. I don't think that they're a cure-all, and I am not sure that they would have shown what really happened, to struggle inside a car at such close quarters. I, I'm not at all sure that they would have uh, either exonerated or indicted the officer here. But can they work? And is there a parallel to the resistance that officers had for a time about taping confessions, and now that resistance is cracking? Is there a parallel between that use of cameras and use of cameras in the field? Well, again, this is going to require a real honest conversation, which I haven't heard. Uh, the, the truth in America is that police brutality is an issue. A larger uh, truth may even be larger than that, is that police disengagement is a huge issue. Yeah. And if you go to cities around the country, the number one complaint in communities, especially poor communities, is I can't get the cops to come and I can't get the cops to do anything when they get there. If anybody thinks that a police officer wearing a camera is going to be more inclined to engage somebody in the street, I think they're nuts. But, you know, the Chicago Police Department, up until like a couple of years ago, had like a 40%, 30% homicide clearance rate. Okay. Yeah. The easiest thing, and I was a homicide prosecutor, I know the easiest thing for cops sometimes is to say, you don't want to talk. Do you? Okay, he doesn't want to talk. That means you're not going to solve the case. If I'm going to be on camera and I'm going to be involved in the uh, face-to-face, coercive, legally coercive, but very unpretty to look at conversation I'm going to have with somebody who just killed two children, I may say, wait a minute, I've got a pension here, I've got a career here, I can't trust the political establishment to stand up for me. So I'm going to simply say, I've advised you of your rights, you don't want to talk, that's it. Which may very well mean, as it does in many cities at this point, it may be a contributing factor to the reality, even in New York, that in there's precincts where more than half the people who murder get away. Yeah. This doesn't seem to raise the hackles of a lot of people these days. And again, Well, that's because those, pre- those precincts aren't on the Upper East Side or Park Slope. You know, they're Gravesend and places uh, with people who are generally voiceless. Well, that's, that's true, too. I mean, that's another issue that's a class issue as well. But, yeah. but, One last question. This hasn't even been floated, but I've been thinking about it. It does seem to me that in the absence of proof that the suspect didn't go for a, your gun, a policeman can always say he went for my gun, and that, that means that's, you know, almost a literal get-out-of-jail-free card unless you could disprove that that happened. I was in fear for my life. He went for my gun. What about the fact that police officers almost always are armed all the time? I'm sure they would feel naked about without their guns or having to keep their guns in their cars. Is that feasible? Would that be a solution? Would they really, truly be uh, dangerously naked without their guns? Well, we have to really look at policing and that's a, I mean, the, the, we need a holistic review of policing. 
Um, if New York City can rein in shootings, you'll see departments, small departments, where there's 20 cops, three of them are in shootings. They should not be in shootings, you know, unless it's some sort of really problematic town. Uh, there is uh, 18,000 departments. They can be vastly different, and some of them, frankly, shouldn't probably even be in business. We need to teach the cops how to disengage also, how to step back, how to decide, wait a minute, we can perhaps have a different strategy than, than escalating here and now, uh, including, by the way, at some point, deciding that some people are best left to get away, who you can easily identify and go get later on yeah. in an era of you know, closed-circuit television and videos everywhere. So policing needs to be rethought. We need to look at the cops that were my heroes when I was in NYPD, which are the cops that always seem to manage to find nonviolent ways to intervene and take people into custody and not have to use force. And they were really looked up to and admired. We need to make that the center. We need to, need to make that the standard. Eugene O'Donnell, former policeman, former prosecutor, current professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. Traffic, parking, lots of other people. Lots of other people who you don't want to make eye contact with because you know that they know that someone didn't shovel their walk. You know how it goes. Use stamps.com instead. Why have these unnecessary, unpleasant interactions with neighbors? Pleasantly interact with stamps. Stamps.com is the best way to get your mailing and shipping done right from your desk. It's not complicated. It's easy which is the opposite of complicated. All you need to do is you get a computer, you get a printer, you buy and print official U.S. postage with Stamps.com. You can print postage for any letter or package, and the mailman picks it up. Just click print and mail. So why go to the post office and look at that guy who didn't shovel his driveway or who overly shoveled yours or used his snowblower and got his snow in your driveway? All we're doing is we're trading piles of snow in the suburbs. Stamps.com has a special offer for just listeners. It is a $110 bonus offer. It includes a free digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in The Gist. That's Stamps.com, and enter The Gist. My son's pleasure in playing bocce. Summer camp. The joke, what did zero say to eight? Nice belt. These are all things that made me smile. But before the 18th century, I probably wouldn't want to be depicted that way in a portrait. We don't really think about this. Smiling just seems like and is a natural instinct. But smiling in public to the point where people knew that you were smiling was something that that just was not done through most of human history. And it is the subject of a book, one of those books that you never really thought about it. But once you do, you say, hey, how about that? Name of the book is The Smile Revolution in 18th Century Paris. Its author is Colin Jones, who's a professor of history at Queen Mary University in London. Hello, Mr. Jones. Uh, hi there. So luckily, we have something of a foundation document about smiling in portraiture. And it is, oh, I'm going to mangle many French uh, words, but it is a self-portrait by the uh, female artist Madame Vigée Lebrun. Am I getting her name close to right? You are right. That's, okay. That's fine. Tell me about her and why she decided to smile in a picture and if this caused the kind of uproar that, say, Bizet caused years later. 
Well, first of all, it did cause an uproar. It was shown uh, at the uh, at the Louvre, in fact, in the Paris uh, Salon de Art uh, exhibition there in 1787. And she's um, shown with her daughter on her lap. She's facing the viewer, and she's smiling at him. And as she smiles, she reveals white teeth. And that seems a very ordinary, indeed, everyday expression for us. But in fact, it caused something of a scandal. And people uh, wrote in uh, horror that this was a, uh, a, an innovation which was most unwelcome. No one had been doing this sort of thing uh, since uh, an antiquity. If teeth appeared in a portrait, uh, it was usually because the person being portrayed was plebeian of the lower orders or not in full command of their rational faculties. Sometimes a child, uh, for example, sometimes someone who's uh, insane or in the uh, grip of some very fierce uh, emotion. So it certainly was seen as a very radical step on Madame Vigilapin's part. Now, as I was uh, reading your book, I said to myself, you know, it does seem that there, in portraiture, there, are, there have been depictions of smiles that predate this, and I jogged yeah. my imagination and memory. Caravaggio had a number of smilers, but a lot of times they were uh, saints or soon-to-be saints looking to heaven, smiling beatifically. Uh, but then again, Caravaggio was uh, seen as and probably a scoundrel and a radical, so that probably has something to do with it. No, you've certainly picked a good example there with Caravaggio. He's a fascinating uh, uh, example. And it's true that the open mouth is, is certainly something that you see a lot in, in, in his work. You know, he seems to be sort of slightly obsessed by uh, the, you know, sort of dark, uh, uh, sort of somber uh, orifices of every, uh, uh, of every kind. But um, nearly all his smiles sort of meet my rules, if you like, for the revelation of teeth and the opening of the mouth. One is that a lot of the people are in very extreme emotions. That's accepted. You know, if you, I think there's the famous one of a snake bite, for example, yeah. where he's reacting, the person is reacting with horror and opening the mouth. Uh, expressions of religious ecstasy as well. That's a very extreme emotion when one's, one's lost sense of one's reason, if you like, one's emotional and spiritual side has totally, totally taken over. Marginal types, uh, you know, gamblers or musicians and these sorts of uh, uh, people who are seen as plebeian or, you know, on the, on the margins of respectability, uh, they too are opening their mouth. But you're certainly true, it's a motif in Caravaggio's work, and he's an extremely interesting artist in that respect, I think. And was the idea of not smiling, well, I mean, I've read your book and it was tied up with many ideas, but the biggest seems to be a regimented view of propriety. But what I argue really is that um, different societies, both in the past and in, you know, in space, in time, as, in space as well as time, have a sort of facial regime mm -hmm. in which um, there is a default position uh, as regards various expressions. And um, in Europe, certainly since the Renaissance, and in some ways that's picking up on a tradition that goes back to antiquity, the facial regime is one of relative facial immobility and the closure of mouth, uh, and indeed of other orifices uh, uh, as well, the sort of politeness and propriety uh, 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 are all about policing the, the various human orifices, uh, keeping them closed and keeping them uh, under control. Right, and as I was reading the book, I was experiencing the thought, oh, that seems stultifying, that seemed, it seems imposed upon those people. But then I had this revelation, you know what? Actually, having to smile in a picture is just as forced upon us today. 
Absolutely. And, you know, if you go back over family uh, photos and things like that, it is, it is quite interesting to see when exactly the smile becomes the default position when confronted by a, uh, a camera. My sense is that in Britain and Europe, that it's really only from about the 1930s that mm-hmm. uh, we do this thing of saying cheese yeah. in front of a, a camera or, or some other word like that, but for, for we, we in Britain always say cheese, to, to show their teeth deliberately. But, of course, the danger is, and artists and, indeed, sitters knew this in advance, it's very difficult to avoid a smile uh, freezing and becoming a sort of artificial uh, rictus or smirk. So it's, a, it's rather a difficult uh, uh, facial expression to manage, if you like, uh, for representational purposes. Have you, in your studies, found that cultures, people, have thought differently of what smiling and or laughter meant, not just in the depiction thereof, but what it meant in real life? Yes, and, and that is very much one of the things that I'm interested in for the 18th century in Paris, because strikes me or struck me in doing the work that this wasn't simply about uh, uh, dentistry, uh, better dentistry. And indeed, in some ways, it's rather curious that the white teeth and counterintuitive that white teeth should appear uh, at this time to be something that's valued because probably in the 18th century, uh, city dwellers' uh, uh, teeth were in worse condition than in any other period in human history uh, hitherto. And this was mainly, principally really, because of the uh, invasion of sugar into uh, town dwellers' diet uh, over the course of the 18th century. So it's totally counterintuitive that white teeth should be valued at this time. My other emphasis, which I I try to give equal importance to both besides dentistry, is the emergence of uh, the cult of sensibility, Mm -hmm. uh, which stresses that humans are sympathetic, pitying fellow, uh, have pity and empathy uh, for other human beings uh, by, by nature and use their faces as a sort of index of emotion and of subjective uh, identification with the feelings of other, other people. In your opinion, does the rise of the duck face, the spate, in fact, the scourge of the duck face, does that represent a distinct regime or is this just a fad, all these duck face photos? I find that very difficult to answer, actually. I'm, I'm rather hoping you'd be able to help me on that. I think that it's significant, more than the fact that it makes your jawline uh, more pronounced and draws in the face. So that's significant, too, that this is a time, if that was the time, uh, if the time you're speaking of is the time of the worst dentistry known to man, this is the time of the most obesity. So people want to look thinner, whereas, you know, throughout history, yeah, there have been times absolutely. where people have wanted to look plumper. But I also yep. think that it's something, it's not smiling. It seems to be conveying something other than I'm trying to present my face in the best possible light. It seems to be conveying arrogance or uh, an I don't careedness that I think might maybe more significant than just uh, a passing fad of let's all do the duck face. Well, I think um, that the smile or indeed the duck face are expressions. Uh, And I think a lot of portraiture uh, is grounded in the idea that you're trying to get the real inner person. And for most of history, European history anyway, the the tendency has been to think that that the true person is not represented by an emotion which would be fleeting and passing, difficult to hold, as for example, uh, a smile but by the face set in, a, in, in, in some sort of appearing to be natural way. It is certainly true that when we look at portraits in the past, we sometimes read into them perhaps more, more sort of disdain uh, or, or, or more um, auteur, if you like, 
that doesn't necessarily mean that that's how they were perceived at the time, I think. Colin Jones is the author of The Smile Revolution in 18th Century Paris. He's a professor of history at Queen Mary University in London. He is also a fellow of the British Academy and the past president of the Royal Historical Society. Thank you so much. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much indeed. And now the spiel. Tis a gift to be anxious? The day before Thanksgiving, the Wall Street Journal ran an op-ed about Abraham Lincoln. He declared Thanksgiving a national holiday, and this, of course, was during a time of war. Lincoln was rightly portrayed for having fortitude and for offering hope in the face of the ills that beset the republic. That's all good. But this historical recollection was framed by statements indicating that now, too, is a challenging time. It calls upon all of our resources of perseverance. Second to last line of the piece talks about when so many of our sons, daughters, and their families still bear the burden of protecting democracy. And when on the home front, so many of us are anxious about the direction of the country and the economy. The piece starts by saying it would be wonderful if Thanksgiving 2014 could take place in a year of broadly enjoyed prosperity at home and tranquility abroad, but that is not to be. Now, that's the sort of sentiment that is hard to disagree with, because it is a dangerous world and many people don't have a lot. And yes, be thankful for home and hearth. And we should be thankful and humble, but we should also be historically accurate. The United States is, in this moment, not a nirvana, not a utopia, nor is the world experiencing a Pax Americana. But we're pretty damn close to all these things. The facts are that middle-class wages are and have been stagnant. That is a problem. Yet at the same time, the U.S. economy is the strongest in the industrialized world. Sure, it's true, there is anxiety about the direction of the economy, as the author says, but the reality is that that direction is an upwards direction. Just now, polls are showing that Americans are starting to realize this. Yesterday, Gallup released a poll of what it calls the Economic Confidence Index, and it showed that it virtually matched the post-recession high. A CNN poll showed for the first time since the 2008 recession, a majority of Americans believe that things were going at least, quote, fairly well. The Washington Post offered an explanation of this, this phenomenon. Americans are now getting around to believing that the economy is doing okay. And their explanation was gas prices also have hit a post-recession low. I would offer that pre-election, there was a big incentive for one party to talk about the terrible economic times, and now that incentive has largely dissipated. But what about the sons and daughters protecting democracy? There were 52 deaths in Afghanistan this year. It's horrendous, of course. It's also the lowest in 10 years. In the last three years in Iraq, there have been four U.S. troops killed. In the last year of the George W. Bush administration, that number was 904. So why are we so pessimistic? Why do we believe that dangers lurk and anxieties abound? Some, a little bit, out of realism. A large part, perception, media-fueled. Also, it's a symptom of human nature. Natural selection discriminates against those who don't worry about danger. But I did say media-fueled. And a devious new way of stealing your PIN numbers, your passcodes, using thermal technology to secretly track which buttons you were pushing. Everything from your bank account to your garage door, possibly at risk. Everything. Everything. 
everything at risk. So today on Good Morning America on ABC, they presented this guy, and that seems to be his credential. He's a guy, Mark Rober. He figured out that you could use a thermal imaging device to take a picture of a keypad, like an ATM keypad, and the last buttons a person touched will light up. Your fingers leave a thermal signature. The hottest button is likely the one that was pressed last, and the dimmest button is likely the one that was pressed first. So GMA showed Rober using his device and it worked exactly how he said it would. But that footage was taken from a video that Rober produced, a video that GMA played part of, the part that worked. When GMA tried to replicate the thermal imaging thing in the field, this happened. First, we use the device in a grocery store. But the image from this keypad is covered with heat, not giving a clear indication which buttons were pressed. All right, so on the first try in the grocery store, didn't work. Guess what? They never did get it to work. So does GMA kill the segment? Come on. There are these cool images of thermal imaging. It looks like the Terminator. And the video, the YouTube video that Mark Rober put out, it's like up to 11 million views. That's so shareable. And this whole thing is so scary. Remember, everything's at risk. Everything. They're not going to scrap a segment that has anxiety practically baked into its DNA. So they conduct a field test that's pretty preposterous. Joy allows us to test her garage keypad. Test worked. Maybe because as shown by the heavy winter coats Joy and Mark were wearing, it's winter. Near freezing conditions kind of help the thermal fingerprints to show up. And while there may be someone right behind you online at checkout in the market, it's not going to be a weirdo lurking in your driveway, snapping thermal images of your garage door. GMA does disclose that the thing won't work on metal keypads, which is to say almost every bank ATM keypad out there. So to recap, this system that could put your everything, everything, your everything at risk doesn't work on metal, wasn't independently verified to work indoors relies on the thief to also have your credit card, and no one in any of these reports even bothers to assert that it's actually been used to steal anything in real life, as opposed to just an idea posted on a video that got, well, listen to the number of hits. While it's not known how many, if any, crimes have been committed this way, Mark's video has been viewed more than 11 million times online. Crime wave, potential crime wave, virtual imaginary hypothetical crime wave. You know, it really does bring back the wisdom and forbearance of our 16th president. If only John Wilkes Booth had made a YouTube video with 11 million views, Lincoln would be alive today. It's not known how sensible, if any amount sensible, that last statement was. That's it for today's show. When just producer Andrea Salenzi smiles, she says zila, the Bulgarian word meaning cabbage. When Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, smiles, he says kibiz, which they say in Morocco, meaning bread. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate, says sag omelette, meaning say omelette in Sweden. You can subscribe in iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. You can get our daily email at slate.com slash just email. We're on the podcast. We're on the app Yo. Subscribe to podcasts. It'll let you know when the show is posted. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. I shall post the entirety of that GMA report that you and your family should know. Email us at thegist at slate.com. I don't need to say anything to produce a smile. All I need to do is think about the Wikipedia entry for Say Cheese, specifically the see also part, 
which I will read right now in its entirety. See also, cheese, the food to which this phrase refers. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Dan Coyce, co-host of Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast. On this week's episode, we're talking about 2014's most popular baby names, plus discussing parental pot smoking with vice writer and suburban mom Jessica Roque. Search for Mom and Dad are Fighting in the iTunes Store or on your podcast app.